Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In this episode of Political Economy, I sit down with economist Leah Bustan to explore the truth behind the prevailing narratives that surround America's immigration policy debates. Are immigrants truly responsible for job loss among native-born Americans? Does immigration burden the U.S. economy? And do today's immigrants assimilate less rapidly than their predecessors? We'll delve into those questions and more. Leah is a professor of economics at Princeton University, where she also serves as the director of the Industrial Relations section. Last year, she co-authored with Rand Abermitsky the fantastic book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Last year, you wrote one of the, maybe the, the, the best economics books that I've certainly read in recent years, Streets of Gold, in which you talk about the reality of the American immigrant experience. What is sort of the reality versus the myth? And has that reality changed over since the turn of the 20th century? Well, I think the first myth is a really simple one, which is this idea that somehow these days we are at a high point of immigration, that we're experiencing an unprecedented flood of immigrants to the country. Um, and that myth is just simply not true. Um, we've only recently reached 14% of the population foreign born now. And in fact, we had around 50 years in the Ellis Island generation when 14% of the population was foreign born. Um, so if anything, we have 50 more years to go before we can claim the mantle of unprecedented flood of immigration. Um, but you know, these days people are worried that immigrants are coming from different parts of the world. Historically, most of our immigrants came from Europe and these days immigrants come from a very diverse set of countries, including countries in Latin America and in Asia, and people worry that immigrants won't do as well um, now that we're taking immigrants from around the world. And that part of the myth is not true either. I mean, I think one thing that's really important to remember is that immigrants themselves never really moved up the ladder all the way to complete parity with US born workers in their own careers in that first generation. And really it's always been the kids of immigrants. Um, we call them the second generation, you know, the people who were born in the US but had foreign born parents um, that experienced really dramatic upward mobility. And what floored us about the data is how similar the pace of upward mobility is for these children of immigrants today compared to the past. I think most people assume it's way worse that in the past, either they either they uh, moved up the ladder and, you know, started running, a, running a business or the kids all became doctors and, and and it's not that way anymore. Exactly. And that was the view that I had before I started looking into the big data as well. I mean, I think. Um, you know, for those of us who went to high school here in the U.S., we have this very nostalgic, rosy story about Ellis Island immigrants. And then, you know, you open the newspaper and you hear a very different story about immigrants today. But that's what we wanted to subject um, to the data. Um, and 
what we find is that even for the children of immigrants from very poor sending countries, um, uh, from Mexico, which is not as poor now as it used to be, from Central America, um, you know, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, we find that the children of immigrants from those countries are moving up from uh, sort of the bottom part of the income distribution in childhood up to above the median and beyond um, in adulthood, and really at the same pace as children of Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, Russian immigrants in the past. And so once I stared at those two uh, patterns right side by side, I realized there's a lot more commonality in the immigrant experience now uh, with the past. And so in a way, um, our view on the data is be optimistic and don't be worried. Um, immigrants today are, are making it here. What is the, the difference between immigrants who come from poorer countries versus immigrants who come from OECD countries or, 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 or you know, maybe, you know, uh, higher income countries? Well, if you look at the um, earnings for immigrants when they first arrive, uh, immigrants from richer countries um, certainly are doing better upon first arrival. And they're usually around neck and neck with the average for U.S. born workers. Um, there are some countries today where immigrants are doing even better than the U.S. born when they first arrive. Um, some rich countries like Japan, but also some poor countries like India. And in that case, uh, the immigrants that come from those poor countries are not at all the average person from India, but they're very positively selected to um, have high levels of education or come from wealthy backgrounds uh, before they arrive. And then if you look at the initial earnings of um, immigrants from poorer countries, of course, those earnings are a lot lower and they're lower than the U.S. born as well. And if you think about it, if you are coming from a country where you don't even have the opportunity to go to high school, let alone finish high school, the set of jobs that you will be working in when you first arrive in the U.S. is going to be manual work, um, could be gardening um, and landscaping, could be restaurant work um, or child care, elder care. Um, but, you know, that initial position is not... Um, destiny. It doesn't. It doesn't last. Um, immigrants themselves do uh, experience earnings growth over their career, but especially what's going on is the children that are being raised by those poorer immigrants um, are reaching the average um, when they get into the labor force themselves. So even though they're coming from poor families, um, they within one generation really look just like the average U.S. born kid. I think. There are at least two reasons people get concerned about immigration. One, I think they're concerned with the issue with, that we've just been talking about, that uh, immigrants today are different and we're going to create, we're going to have this vast, permanent generation after generation, uh, you know, underclass of people who just cannot make it. And that will be a, a drain on society in all kinds of ways. And then, of course, the other concern is that these people will take our jobs. These new people will, you know, supplant us. What is sort of the state of that debate about the impact of immigrants on uh, on sort of native-born workers? So, when we first um, released our research findings that the children of immigrants are doing very well, we thought, well, 
everyone's going to look at this and, and, and jump for joy. They're going to see that um, immigrants, at least over two generations, are not a drain on our resources. And that was the general reaction. But there was certainly a, um, a minority reaction um, that was notable saying, well, wait a second, if these children are doing so well, that must mean they're taking away jobs from somebody else, maybe from our kids. Um, doing too well. They're doing too well. So it's like, if they weren't doing well, then we would worry that there was a drain on the you know, the welfare state, and if they were doing too well, then maybe they're taking jobs from somebody else. Um, and we really can't uh, learn about the effect of immigrants on US-born workers from um, uh, sort of aggregate patterns like this, because the assumption underlying that would be it's zero sum. If somebody is doing well, it must be that someone else is doing poorly, that we only have a given number of jobs to go around. But that's really not the way it works. I mean, immigrants are workers, um, but they're also consumers. So they they demand um, products locally where they, where they settle, and that could be a new house, that could be a teacher for their kids, um, and so on. And and also, immigrants create markets that really just wouldn't exist without uh, immigrant workers there. And so, if you think about going out to a nail salon to get your nails done rather than just painting your nails at home. I mean, uh, that depends on how expensive it is to purchase that service. Um, and so if you can get that service at a reasonable rate, um, then the salon industry will exist. And if not, you know, it will just, um, you know, dry up and disappear. So really, we have to take a look at um, what does the data say when immigrants arrive in the location? Um, do do jobs increase for the U.S. born or are, are jobs taken away? Um, and there's a wide spectrum of findings out there, but um, the vast majority of studies on that topic have found that when immigrants arrive in a location, if anything, job opportunities increase for the U.S. born and, and not decrease. One thing that does happen that I think concerns locals is that housing prices and rents go up when immigrants arrive, uh, just like when anyone arrives in a location in the US. Um, and, and that really just depends on how quickly do we build in response to new arrivals. And we're just not doing a very good job. But everything's a housing problem. <laughs> Everything comes back to that. One group that, that I often hear that does get hurt may be the people who are concerned about immigration don't really care about this, but people who themselves are recent immigrants versus new immigrants. Is a very clear cut there. Do those folks get hurt? I think that's really the only group that people have consistently found in the data are hurt when new immigrants arrive. It ha it comes down to um, what workers are doing similar jobs to each other. You know, we consider those substitutable workers and workers are doing jobs um, that kind of uh, fit together or complement each other. And so going back to this idea of uh, nail salons, you know, if the very recent immigrants are the workers who are painting nails, then maybe another uh, immigrant arrival will, um, lead to some kind of uh, job loss among recent immigrants. But if either longstanding immigrants or US born are, for example, the landlord who is renting out that nail salon or um, someone who is selling insurance to that nail salon in order for the business to open, um, then those are groups that would be complementary workers and those workers can benefit. You said 14% of the population uh, foreign born, is that the right way to put it? Right. The, I think the, the, the peak was like 15%, so we're close, but not only was it 15% or so, but it's 15% for a long period of time. What, what's the right number? 
that it, how do you even begin as an economist to think about that? Or is it beyond economics? Is this not? I mean, we can learn about the cases that we've actually seen in the real world. Um, right now, we have around a million legal entrants to the U.S. a year. Um, we haven't seen something on the order of 10 million. So it would be hard to extrapolate from looking at 1 million to say that 10 million might be okay. Um, there are a couple of cases uh, globally when there have been tremendously large inflows of immigration. For example, in Israel, um, with the migration from the former Soviet Union, um, that was a country of around 6 million people and then 1 million new people entered. Um, so from the US perspective, um, that would be something like 30 million uh, immigrants or so entering um, in a single period of time, just over the course of a couple of years. Um, these days, we only have a million. So going up to 30 would just seem crazy. Um, you'd think, well, there must be so much disruption uh, economically that would come from that. And yet that's not what um, ended up happening um, in the case of Israel. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of details there. Um, the immigrants that arrived from the former Soviet Union were pretty educated. Um, they all received citizenship right away. And so they didn't face um, uh, kind of legal barriers to work. Um, they had some, you know, ethnic or cultural similarities with the people that they were joining. Um, so it's not, we can't learn from that one case to say, well, it would work in other situations, but it is pretty intriguing that when there was a large inflow um, to a developed country like Israel, there wasn't the kind of dramatic um, economic collapse that some people might have predicted. Um, with U.S. data, you know, we're limited to cases where we're talking about, you know, marginal increases, like maybe, okay, we experimented with increasing the H-1B visa cap, um, which has been at 85,000 for 30 years. Um, so we experimented for a couple of years to say, well, let's go up to 125,000 instead. And H-1B is um, a, a temporary um, uh, resident visa that allows for high-skilled um, inflow into usually tech or science. And there might be some concern, well, okay, if we have more tech people coming from India, does that mean we'll have fewer tech jobs for US-born? And um, there's a bit of debate in literature, but um, there are a number of studies now suggesting that um, you know, if anything, it looked like there was more patenting going on, expansion in some of these uh, science and tech type firms, and if anything, maybe more jobs uh, for U.S. born scientists. Um, so from all that we've seen um, in, in this literature, we could go up from the numbers we have today. I don't want us to speculate wildly beyond what we've actually seen in the data, but, you know, for H1B, we could certainly go up from 85 thousand to 125 maybe we could even go you know double and go from 85 um you know up to 170 and we would be okay and we may even thrive um we did we did a great uh, event last year about streets of gold and the one one i remember getting one uh direct message from someone and the criticism they had of uh, of uh, of the book is that we should have more immigrants, but we should be much, much more selective. Uh, that if we were more selective and we really focused on letting in higher educated people, that we could actually have more than 14%. If we made that, if we made that, that was our immigration policy to get as much kind of educated talent as possible. We're going to make it as easy as possible. 
would you be for doing that? Or do you think there's a, something to be gained from a, let's say, a broader definition of talent? Maybe your talent is in physics. Maybe your talent is you got a lot of hustle and you strive and that's, that, that's, your, that's your talent. Well, I would be very supportive of, as we expand the number of slots of uh, to new immigrants, expanding into higher skilled, higher tech immigrant entrants. Um, but I wouldn't want to do that at the expense of our existing immigrant composition. Um, so, you know, if we have a million a year of, of legal entrants, we fix that million and then say, well, we should use a larger portion of that million on the science and engineers, um, that that does make me worry because I think there's many sectors um, that um, where, for which there's, there's high consumer demand and just think about like hand-picked agriculture, for example, um, that would dry up in, in response. Um, and so I uh, just, you know, in the Trump administration 2017 RAISE Act, so that was basically the proposal was let's um, rebalance immigration towards the high skilled and cut the total number of slots. Um, that's not something I'm supportive of. But if we're going to expand the number of slots, even if just marginally, you know, we're at a million. So if we go up to a million two or a million three, I could imagine saying the new the extra slots that we've added should go to uh, science and tech so that we can engage in global competition for talent. Um, and if we don't um, allow in uh, those extra high-skilled immigrants, they're going to go to Canada. Um, they're going. They might go to Germany. They might go to the UK. Um, and so we would rather um, have those high-skilled workers here. Uh, in, in sort of the aftermath of the book, did you do any talking with? actual policymakers? And if so, what was the, what were those interactions like? Um, one thing that really surprised us, um, surprised me and Ron, was um, how warm of an embrace we did receive for the book um, in D.C. Uh, from members of the center-right, let's say, so, you know, AEI uh, included. Um, and we haven't really uh, been much in touch with um, uh, the center-left. So we thought that this was a message that was going to be primarily of interest um, uh, to establishment Democrats, and we haven't really heard much from them. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of energy right now on trying to solve immigration issues uh, among the center-right. Unfortunately, it's a group that's not much in power, so I don't know if these ideas are going to have traction, but there's a lot of great ideas floating around right now. Um, among that group. Um, and that's a group that's been very highly involved with immigration reform in our history. Um, go back to President Reagan and the 1986 reform, uh, go back to the 1990 Immigration Act, and, and that was bipartisan. And even the most recent attempt at comprehensive immigration reform in 2013 um, was a bipartisan effort. So um, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised, actually, that there's quite a lot of interest uh, there in the center-right. Um, but, you know, among Democrats, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's an issue that they feel if we bring it up, then we're always playing defense um, and we're always ending up talking about, you know, crisis at the border, quote unquote. Um, but um, I did see um, and was heartened by the fact that, uh, for example, there's a recent bill that was just proposed for uh, to address the documented dreamers. Um, and, and that's a group of, of young people who are brought to the U.S. with their parents um, when their parents arrive as temporary workers, for example, on H-1B, 
um, and uh, the parents are documented when they arrive, um, but then they're waiting in limbo to receive um, permanent residency. And if their children age out, when they get to 18 and their parents still haven't received a green card, even though they're waiting in a green card queue, the children are at risk of deportation. So I, I was really pleased to see that there have been efforts um, to try to address that issue. And I think that that's an issue uh, of strong bipartisan consensus. Yeah. With the time we have left, I want to talk about the automation issue because you wrote an interesting or co-wrote an interesting paper looking at uh, the impact, I think, of, uh, of automated machine tools. Based on economic history, what do I mean? Like, what do, what do we know? What's the history been? What's the classic econ answer about automation taking jobs away? Well, first of all, uh, robots and AI are only the latest in a long history of um, steps at automation. Um, so um, we can go back to the beginning part of the 20th century with um, electrification and the assembly line, um, which was automating jobs that used to be porters, basically people moving product around factories by hand. Um, and that was a very low-skilled job. And that job disappeared uh, with the assembly line, but the assembly line um, also generated new jobs, uh, jobs that were slightly higher skilled um, and that involved um, design um, and product uh, development and more white-collar jobs in the manufacturing sector. Um, and then if you flash forward to uh, the time period that we've been studying, we've been looking at, as you said, the automation of machine tools. Um, so these are tools like mechanical presses and boring machines and drills and lathes that used to be all operated by a hand machinist. If any of you who are listening have taken shop class, metal shop, which I did in seventh grade, you would have used exactly one of these machines. Um, and in the 1970s and 80s, these machines were computerized. And so um, they could become far more precise uh, and they um, could perform a set of operations without a human inter intervention intervening, but um, they required a new set of skills like programmers uh, to uh, operate them and make sure that they those machines were working properly. Um, and so, in the case of automated machine tools, there was a set of workers um, who were working by hand, uh, whose jobs were then automated away, but another set of workers um, where jobs were created. So I think that essentially the history of automation has been one of uh, steps forward and steps back, um, where some new jobs are created with automation and some jobs are automated away. Um, so we're not really in any kind of brave new world. Um, it is scary because I think some of us are thinking, well, our jobs are going to be automated away by AI, and we, we don't know the scope of where AI is going. Um, but if history is any guide, there will be new jobs created um, alongside uh, some of the old jobs um, that may involve some kinds of routine of filling out of forms, or routine filling out of spreadsheets that could be done better by AI. I, I think people often don't find that answer to be satisfactory because that's the answer uh, I will give, though not as eloquent as what you did. But I'll give that answer, and, and they don't can't they can imagine they can imagine maybe how these new technologies will take their job. Then I'll say, ah, but history suggests there will be many new tasks and new jobs created, and 
and they'll be like, okay, can you give me some examples? And examples are terrible because I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. So you have to sort of say, uh, you know, trust me to some degree. And people just, it's a hard case to make. I think that that's I think that's right, and I think and you may have noticed in the examples that I gave that the new tasks that were created always tend to be um, uh, more complicated, require more cognitive skill, require um, you know interacting with the machine in a new way, maybe as mediated by a computer, um, and so I think there is um, fear about well, what are um, high school graduates going to do? Um, and high school graduates uh, may have comparative advantage in working with people um, and, you know, working um, in the medical profession as nurses assistants and that sort of thing, um, working um, with, with children um, and working in, in retail and hospitality. Um, but if you look at the manufacturing sector these days, and in part because of the experience of computerized machine tools, manufacturing is actually pretty high tech. Um, and it tends to have a lot of college graduates, um, or at least um, uh, people with some college. Um, and so I, I think it's a reasonable concern. Uh, what will um, high school graduates and especially male high school graduates do um, when we're experiencing technological change? Would your guess be that these new technologies will be of a kind, have the kind of impact that we've seen in the past? Or is there a part of you that thinks that maybe this is like this time it's different, brave new world, and these will, you know, that all of a sudden we'll be looking at a future where the uh, typical unemployment rate is 15% and typical labor force participation rate is 20 points below what it's been over the past 50 years. And it is going to be some sort of inflection point. Uh, you may not think that's likely, but do you kind of think like, well, maybe for the first time in my career, I think that could happen? Well, as we were researching computerized machine tools, um, we um, started by thinking that the progress had taken place in the 1950s and early 1960s because of the number of um, freak out books, basically, in the late 1950s saying, this is the end of work. Uh, because... When World War II ended, there was a whole set of ideas that had developed during the war of how we could um, automate machinery, like, for example, autom automate the, um, the pointing of guns. Um, and very quickly, um, uh, industrialists thought, well, we can do this in the factory, too. So the ideas were there in the end of the 40s, but it took around 25 years to actually commercialize them. Um, and in the meantime, uh, there was a good uh, 25 years of despair and hysteria about how we were reaching the end of work, um, right at the point, actually, of manufacturing heyday in the U.S. Uh, so I think we're running a little bit ahead of where the technology is right now. Um, and we're, we're starting the hysteria moment probably a bit too early. Leah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. It was great to be here. 